Uh, It's great to be with you this morning. It's Father's Day. Let me say happy Father's Day to all the dads in the audience. I want you to know my fondest wish for you is that your children love you enough to give you a new bow tie for Father's Day. So hopefully at least some of you have children who love you that much. Uh, This is not a new bow tie. Um, This is a vintage bow tie. This is a bow tie that my dad gave me. He wore it in the 50s and 60s, and so now I'm wearing it today. Isn't it nice to know that if you live long enough, the clothes are no longer out of date. They become vintage at some point, so (laughs) something we all have to look forward to. I have a question for you. We're asking lots of questions this summer. My question for you is, where are you going to be next Sunday night at 5 o'clock? Here. That's the correct answer. Everybody say it together. Here. Next Sunday night is our annual area-wide worship service, our 19th annual area-wide worship service. It's a time when uh, Christians from all over Albuquerque come together to worship together in this place. Um, It would be really a shame if we as the hosts didn't have a bunch of people show up to host the people who are going to be here. So I really want to encourage you to be here next Sunday. We'll spend a lot of time uh, singing together, a lot of time uh, listening to God's word together, a lot of time in prayer together. And then at the end of that, we'll go over to the gym and we'll enjoy some pie together, some homemade fruit pies together. That is uh, to benefit the Christian Student Center. They are celebrating their 70th anniversary next weekend at the Christian Student Center. So it's something that we should celebrate with them. The meal that we usually have here is going to be at the Student Center, a lunch meal. The Taco Hut meal will be at noon around that time over at the Student Center. You can find details um, in your bulletins. But please... Plan on being here next Sunday at 5 o'clock. We'll worship together. Also, I want to give you a quick Project 9K update. Project 9K, for those of you who don't know, is our Bible reading challenge here at Netherwood Park Church of Christ. We have challenged ourselves as a church to read at least 9,000 books of the Bible in 2017. And to date, we have read 2,518. We are a little behind. We need to pick up the pace. Uh, Starting July 1st, there will be a new challenge coming out to encourage some of us who maybe started out strong but have kind of tailed off to start back up strong again, so be looking forward to that. Well, this morning we're continuing with our summer sermon series called Jesus Asks, and each week during June and July, we'll be examining a different question that Jesus asked then, and we'll be looking at how that question applies to our lives our walk with Jesus now. We started this series with two questions that Jesus asked his disciples. He asked, who do people say that I am? And then he followed that up by asking, who do you say I am? And in that first week, we asked ourselves the question, who do our lives say that Jesus is? And then last week we climbed into a boat with Jesus and other disciples and we experienced an earth-shaking storm. It left us shaking in our sandals and we were confronted with Jesus' questions. He said, why are you so afraid? And he said, are you still lacking in faith? And last week we ended by determining that we must replace our fear Our fear of all the things that can physically harm us, replace that fear with terror, with awe, with wonder at the one who has the power to calm the waters and calm the winds. 
The one who has promised to take his faithful children home. Home where there will be no more storms. Where there will be no fear. And today we're going to look at another rhetorical question. Today we're going to hear Jesus ask, What good will it be if we gain the whole world, yet forfeit our souls? Before we confront that question, let's pray. Father, there's so much in our world that can draw us away from you. And Father, the, the world that we live in, the society that we're in, the people who are around us, Father, they, they teach us to always ask for more and more and more. And Father, help us to realize that everything that we need is found in you. And Father, you are enough. We pray this through the name of Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, today's question that Jesus asked, much like last week's questions, is a rhetorical question. Rhetorical questions are those questions that are just asked for effect. There really isn't an expected answer. In fact, the surface answer is often very obvious. The question is asked to make a point. Uh, You might have already heard these questions today, which are rhetorical questions. Is it hot enough for you? Well, people aren't really looking for an answer. They're making a point. It is hot. Or maybe they might say, can you believe this weather? And if you really want to mess people up, give them answers to the rhetorical questions that they're not expecting, you know, so that engineers among us would probably say, you know, is it hot enough for you? Well, actually, I would prefer it three degrees warmer. Or, uh, can you believe this weather? Well, yes, I can believe it because I'm experiencing it and I can experientially tell you that it is, in fact, occurring. But most of us don't engage in those kind of conversations. We're not expecting an answer. Some of you might have had this experience. You walk into your teenager's room, you take a quick look around and you say, did a bomb go off in here? You're really not looking for an answer. You know a bomb didn't go off in there, but you're trying to make a point, right? You're trying to make a point that this room is unacceptably messy. I asked that question many times. It really never had any effect as far as I could tell. So let's listen to Jesus, to Jesus tell a, to ask another rhetorical question. And let's see if we can get Jesus' point. It's in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says, If anyone would come after me, He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. And now here comes the questions. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Two rhetorical questions. What good will it be if we gain the whole world, yet forfeit our souls? And what can we give in exchange for our souls? Two questions asked and no responses recorded. 
No responses were recorded because no responses were expected. You see, for disciples, for God followers, the answers are really obvious, aren't they? Well, let's put some answers to these rhetorical questions that weren't really expected to have answers. What good will it be if I gain the whole world just to lose my soul? Well, it won't be good at all. What does it matter if I accumulate all kinds of money and all number of possessions just to lose my soul? Well, all that money and all that stuff then just wouldn't matter at all. What's the point in scrambling after more and more money and more and more things if I'm going to then forfeit my soul? Well, there is no point in scrambling after more and more. What can I give? What of all my money and all of my possessions can I give in exchange? What can I trade for my soul? To put it in a more crass way is, can I buy God off? The answer is obviously no. There's nothing that I own, nothing in all of my possessions that I could give in exchange for my soul. What is my soul worth? Well, it's priceless. It's beyond value. We know the answers to all of those questions, don't we? And Jesus' disciples then knew the answers to those questions. The answers for followers of Jesus Christ, the answers are obvious. So if the answers are so obvious to us and we're so obvious then... Then why did Jesus ask these questions? Last week we noted that no command in the Bible is repeated more often than some variation of do not be afraid. The Bible talks a lot about fear and Jesus asked about fear because he knows that we struggle with our fears. And he knows that fear is the enemy of faith. Well, the Bible also talks a lot about money. And it talks about the dangers of loving money. And the Bible talks a lot about money, and Jesus asks questions about money because he knows that we often put our faith in money and our possessions instead of putting our faith in our God. To put it another way, Jesus asks, What good will it be if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Because we obviously struggle to live out what is so obvious. Oh, our lips know the obvious answers. Our lips know to say there's nothing good about gaining the world if we're going to lose our souls, but our lives don't always tell the same story. We know that's true, don't we? We, we find that, that knowing the word, even knowing the obvious words, We know that oftentimes that's very different than living the word. And that's why Jesus asked the questions. To take us back to the word. To remind us of what has true value. To force us to once more answer and acknowledge and confront what should be obvious in our words. But also obvious in our lives. Well, here's another rhetorical question. 
What does the word say about loving money? What does the word say about loving money? Well, let's sample just a few verses. Let's answer this rhetorical question. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 10, we read this. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. See, if we put our faith in money, if we look to money for our security, there's never enough money to feel completely secure. We're never satisfied. And if we're not careful, when we're asked how much is enough, the answer is always going to be more, more, more. Well, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5, we read this. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. For what can man do to me? In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, Paul writes this, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything Through him who gives me strength. See, the world says we can never have enough. But the word says to be content with what money and possessions we have. The word says the answer to the question, how much is enough? The answer is, well, exactly what I have is enough. The word says to be content because we have a God, a God who will never leave us, God who will never forsake us, God who is our helper and who is our strength. We can do all things, not through our possessions, but through our God who gives us strength. God is enough. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6 in the scripture that we read earlier, Paul's giving instructions to Timothy, to this young preacher. And Paul is encouraging him and instructing him. And one of the things that Paul focuses on is contentment. In 1 Timothy 6, 6, he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That's an important reminder, isn't it? That we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of this world. 
I like to paraphrase it this way. He who dies with the most toys is still dead. Dead's the great, death is the great equalizer, isn't it? We brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out. Which is why it's so tragic to think that we might spend our limited time here on earth in the pursuit of wealth. Pursuit of wealth, which we not only can't take with us, but which if we love it, it's the root, it's the source of all kinds of evil. And evil separates us from our God. Separates us from our God both now and in the judgment day to come when we do leave this world. It's tragic to think that we would futilely spend our limited time here on earth trusting in wealth to provide the security that can only come from trusting in God. And the word also has a lot to say about the futility in trusting in wealth. Back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, this time in verse 17. Paul tells Timothy to command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Why not trust in wealth? Well, Paul tells us because wealth is so uncertain, because wealth is so unreliable. In Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19, Jesus has this to say about wealth. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then in verse 24, he goes on and says, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Trust in wealth? Well, because it's perishable and because it's removable. It rots and it rusts. It burns and it's stolen. It's swindled and it's eaten away by inflation. It's perishable. It's removable. It's not trustworthy. Why not trust in wealth? Well, even though it's unreliable and perishable and removable, it's also powerful. Money will take control. Money will become our master. Money will become our God. And when it becomes our master and it becomes our God, it separates us from the true God, from the reliable and eternal and permanent God. We cannot serve both God and money. We can only serve God or money. More words from Jesus, this time from Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. 
And Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to myself, Self, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And then Jesus says, This is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Why not trust in wealth? Because wealth lies. You see, wealth gives the appearance of significance. Wealth gives the impression of importance. Wealth gives the aura of worthiness. But life isn't measured by our possessions. Our significance isn't determined by the amount in our bank accounts. Our importance isn't dependent on the size of our houses Our worth isn't determined by our net worth. And that's why Jesus asked us, what would you exchange for your soul? It's an interesting question, isn't it? So if you could bargain with God, which you can't, I I hasten to tell you, you can't bargain with God. But if you could bargain with God... How would that conversation go? If God asked me, Walter, would you be willing to give up your house to ensure eternal life for your soul? I would answer quickly, yes, I'd give up my house. If God were to ask me, Walter, would you be willing to turn over your bank accounts and your retirement accounts to buy eternal life for your soul? I would answer, yes, in a heartbeat. And if you got really personal and said, how about your truck and your bow and your bikes and your fishing rods and your cabin and all the rest of your stuff? And man, we have a lot of stuff. My answer would be, yes, take it. Take all of it. Take it now. Because those are quick and obvious answers. I'd give up anything I possess. So if I'm so quick to acknowledge that there is nothing that I possess that's worth so much that I wouldn't give it up in exchange for my soul, I have to wonder, why am I so hesitant to do the very things that God has promised will bring eternal life for my soul? Why am I so slow to pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and gentleness in exchange for my soul. 
why am I often so uncertain about doing good? About being rich in good deeds? About being generous and willing to share in exchange for my soul? Why am I so tentative about seeking first God's kingdom and God's righteousness in exchange for my soul? Why am I so reluctant to deny myself and take up my cross and follow Jesus Christ in exchange for my soul? Why am I so willing to accept the fleeting pleasures of my possessions and yet I'm so hesitant to accept the eternal blessings that have been promised by my Father? And I know sometimes that kind of life, the life of a disciple, sometimes that can sound harsh. Sometimes it can sound unpleasant. It can sound like it's without joy, it's without pleasure, and sometimes we've portrayed it that way. But life as a disciple of Jesus Christ is anything but that. See, we are not called to a life of all pain and no gain in Jesus Christ. We're called to a life that we're guaranteed to have some pain because all life has pain. But a life that in the ultimate analysis is all gain. After all, what would you give in exchange for true contentment, for true satisfaction? What would you give in exchange for a life without worry? What would you give in exchange for true confidence? Confidence that the Lord is always on your side. What would you give in exchange for being able to take hold of, to truly possess eternal life? To possess life that is truly life. Back to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 18. Command those who have wealth to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Life that is truly life. And what would you give in exchange for a reward from the Son of Man? A reward from the Son of Man when he comes in his Father's glory with all of the angels. Jesus promised this. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Let's pray. Father, we stand before you and acknowledge that Jesus is coming soon. 
Father, we acknowledge that we know our time on this earth is short. And Father, our prayer is that you will instill within us a sense of urgency. Father, that you will give us clarity. Father, that you will show us the obvious answer. That you alone are worthy. And Father, help us to serve you and you alone. It's the name of Jesus the Christ who died for us, we pray. Amen. Well, as we get ready to end, I want to leave you with three rhetorical questions. Rhetorical in the sense that I don't want you to tell me the answer out loud, but I want you to chew on these questions and to chew on the answers. First question, who does your life say Jesus is? To those observing, to those watching, who does your life say Jesus is? From our second week together, I want you to chew on this question. Who does your fear say Jesus is? For those watching and those observing, who does your fear say your Jesus is? And finally, what does your attitude about your stuff say Jesus is? For those watching, for those observing, who does your attitude about your stuff say Jesus is? And let me remind you, this world is not our home. And our life is not our stuff. Our treasure is with the Lord. Let's stand. Let's sing. Say